sadly, too many Christians draw quick conclusions on people. They they kind of treat people like a book and, and judge judge the book by its cover. Well, sometimes we do that with people. And so we just look at someone and we, we judge people by what do we first hear about them or what what's the image that we see as we look at them. I mean, for example, uh, this even happens in churches, right? We do it all the time, right? Somebody... Let's say someone new walks in, and, and we, 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 we might think to ourselves, hopefully you don't say this out loud, but you might think to yourself, well, uh, man, he shouldn't wear that to church, or uh, she shouldn't wear that to church, or uh, man, what's up with those tattoos? Or, you know, we, we, we see the car they drive in, in park out there, and they're like, wow, that car's too expensive. Or, you know, they, we see their house, right, and we say, wow, that house is too big. What a waste of money. Or, you know, uh, we, we judge people by other things like, like for example, wow, he has a Ph.D. Or, wow, she never graduated from high school. Or, why do they go to the public school? Or, why are they homeschooling? Right? You know, <laughs> right? It, it, it goes both ways, right? So we, we judge people often very, very quickly. Some people would call that prejudice. Prejudice is just where you're emphasizing a prejudgment of someone, which causes us to form an opinion before you actually know all the facts about somebody. And then once you've, you've raced to a conclusion, and sometimes we actually ignore some essential facts, well then, God's going to show us here that you're actually on the way to some really bad, irrational thinking. And the whole point of James 2, verses 1 through 13 here, is he's trying to diffuse faulty thinking that we might have. And and, and I really think James is a master communicator, and what he's going to do here in these verses is he's going to give you the principle to follow. Then he's going to illustrate that principle with real-life examples And then he's going to explain the reasons why your behavior could be inconsistent with true Christianity. And then he's going to exhort us to do what's right. He's going to give us a couple commands here at the end of what we should be doing. So that's what he's doing here. So let's read James 2, starting in verse 1. These are the words of the living God, and he says, My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or... Sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so act, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. On the screen here, I've put uh, both the, what does the main idea look like here, as well as what is the proposition that God wants you to do. I couldn't determine which one I liked better, so you're getting the double-barrel shotgun at the same time. Here you go. A main idea is from this text of Scripture is this, that a mature Christian does not show partiality, but on the other hand, what, what, what are we supposed to do? Show love to all people. The proposition here is this, that God does not want you to show partiality, but to love all people. So there's the, the put-off and the put-on that we see in the Scripture, the, this, what we call the principle of replacement. So since we're commanded to not show partiality here, let me make sure we understand what this means. And of course, my favorite dictionary would be the Webster's 1828 Dictionary. Don't read the new ones. The old good one written by a Christian says this, that partiality is an undue bias of mind toward one party or side, which is apt to warp the judgment. Partiality springs from the will and the affections rather than from a love of truth and justice. Obviously, Webster, being a Christian, understood probably this passage here quite well. And that is so true that uh, we need to have an understanding of truth and justice and love so that we don't show partiality. So what is the principle that the Holy Spirit is sharing with us here? Well, it's right there in verse 1. It's right there in verse 1. And it's basically this idea, when it says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, that faith in Christ and partiality are totally incompatible. They're totally incompatible. In other words, they don't go together. They shouldn't go together. And so James, by the way, notice he's clearly addressing who here? clearly addressing Christians when he calls them brothers, or some of your Bibles will say brethren. Uh, these are people who have already come to faith in Christ. So uh, why, why, am I, why am I even bothering to point that out? Because here the, the issue is not what they believe or in whom they trust. In fact, in fact James actually uses some of the most exalted language for Christ here in a very brief statement when he, he says that their faith is in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So these people have a rock-solid theology. They are clearly a part of God's family. They are His children. They are true believers. 
But there is something seriously wrong here. See, their attitude doesn't fit their faith. The attitude doesn't fit the faith. And the Greek word translated partiality there is communicating the idea of receiving the face. (laughs) Interesting way to put it. Receive the face. You, You see, a person's outward appearance is being talked about here. The idea is you're receiving the image of a person as if it is the real thing. But what does God say? God says, I judge the heart. I look inside the person. I don't judge simply by outward appearance. So God's judging the truth of a matter by our heart, not the face. And we as Christians are called here to reflect that particular quality in our own lives. Now, a word of clarification, I think, is in order here. As we think about partiality, partiality can actually go in two directions. Don't just think of it in one. See, it it can be both positive and negative. On one hand, by merely looking at outside characteristics, sometimes we miss fatal character flaws in a person that can be masked by simply looking at outward appearances, right? Just, if you just judge a person by their beautiful clothing or maybe they're a smooth talker, you can, you can miss ser- serious character flaws. But on the other hand, sometimes we too quickly condemn a person by looking at outward appearances. Uh, sometimes we fail to see the Christ-like character. Sometimes we fail to see abundant spiritual fruit in someone's life. That is clearly there just because we don't like their clothing or we don't like the way they're talking. And so James, by the way, isn't questioning the importance of being discerning. Okay, uh, By all means, we should, we should so discern it. But James here is addressing the sin of partiality that's shown in our first encounter primarily. Okay, So that's the principle. Our faith should align up with um, it should align with what we believe, right? Obviously. And then the, the, the conduct and, and our behavior should come out of our good theology, hopefully. But James goes on to illustrate, lest you're not understanding the principle here. He's a great master illustrator, and he, and he doesn't leave his readers with just a rule to follow. Show no partiality. That's the rule. But he tells them a story which uh, I believe they could relate to. Now, the the story you'll see starting in verse 2 to to 4 there. And the idea is, the the setting of the illustration is an assembly. Now, the word there, by the way, isn't our English word church, the Greek word ekklesia, but it's actually the word from which we get synagogue. So think of a Jewish synagogue. Now, in the earliest days of Christianity... Especially for Jewish believers, the place of meeting was uh, it was still called a synagogue. Uh, in some cities, Jewish Christians were able to meet in Jewish synagogues, at least for a little while, uh, until the unbelieving Jews who who didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah would, would would have kicked them out. They would have been expelled from their synagogues. Although most Jewish Christians likely likely met in homes or some other convenient location. But they like to usually often retain that word synagogue, and so James is using that word here 
to describe their assembly. So as we apply the story to our day, our own day, it's certainly relevant for us. Uh, you, you can think of this as your, you, whatever your place of worship is, your church service. And I've given you a, a diagram of a synagogue and what uh, kind of typically what it, what it would have looked like on the inside, kind of from a top-down view. But, but picture this. In James' illustration here, you have two men, right? Uh, two men who are, who are coming to a church gathering for worship. Clearly you have one who's dressed very nicely. The Bible says he's, he's quite fancy with his jewelry and his expensive clothing. Now, you have to understand in ancient Near East culture, it was customary for a person of great wealth or nobility to wear jewel-studded garments of fine fabric. The, the clothing showed the man, so to speak. And so often they would wear silk. And their garments were announcing the influence of the man, how, how powerful this man was. And, and these men were very powerful at that time. So someone who dressed like that, all, all it would take to get rid of somebody was a simple flick of the hand or a nod of the head, and you're gone. That's, that's pretty powerful. But something about this illustration here would probably strike James first century readers as very odd. See, at the time James is writing the letter, the story was usually reversed. Right? Christians, as it, as it says here, were often brought into the assemblies of the rich, the wealthy, and the nobility, and, and, it, and it wasn't usually very good for them, for the Christians in that particular setting, because they were there to be interrogated and judged. It wasn't common for the wealthy and the respectable to show up at church. And so, having caught his reader's imagination here, James is introducing now the second character in the illustration, showing this principle of partiality. And notice, the second man is a very poor man, wearing dirty, smelly clothing. He wanders into the assembly. He probably looks like a homeless person who's lived under the bridge for a few years and notice he doesn't have any fancy jewels, no expensive clothing, he doesn't have bodyguards to protect him, he has no influence over anybody whatsoever and please note that he's not just your average man he's at the bottom of the ladder so to speak, he's, he is really poor exceptionally poor. And so it leaves the usher of the assembly in a in a very awkward position. Imagine being the usher, you're standing over there at the door, you have a, a decision to make. You have no time to really think about it. And when you're put in those situations, it really shows your character, doesn't it? Your character tends to shine through during those those moments. But what does the usher of the church do? Well, in James' illustration, notice the usher is influenced by the celebrity status of whoever this rich person is. And so the rich person gets VIP treatment. Did you notice what the text of Scripture says? He gets the seat of honor because he's VIP, very important person, right? So you get to sit here, he says. And you say, well, 
where's this good place that James is talking about? Well, if you look at a cross-reference in your Bible to Matthew 23, Matthew talks about the chief seats of the synagogue. So there must have been preferred seating in, in the synagogue for people of importance. In the ancient synagogue, the notice the pulpit would have been in the middle of the building, right in the middle. That's that area right there called the bima. Uh, if you were in the tabernacle, you would have had the scrolls at the front, and, and usually the, the chief seats would have been at the front, close to the Torah. So seating for men, notice, would run along the sides, close to the, the pulpit. Sorry, ladies, but uh, you sit in the balcony, back here, up in the balcony. And children would be there as well. So the best seats in the house were the ones that were closest to the person who was teaching the Torah. And so the rich man, he gets the seat of honor, but notice the poor man... What does the text of Scripture say? He, he basically gets nothing, right? Because uh, the poor man, it says that he's coming in his shabby, shabby clothing. And verse 3 says that if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, see, you, you sit here in the good place, while the poor guy, he doesn't even get a seat. Notice the text says, you stand over there. <laughs> wow. In other words, just stay out of the way, right? Nobody wants to smell you and look at you. Just get over there. Get out of the way. Well, let me make something clear about what James is not saying in this passage, okay? Some people get strange ideas. I've read about, uh, um, as I was thinking through this passage, the, the illustration here is about one judging the rich man as being better than the poor man. So it's clearly not showing, is, is it good to be rich or is it bad to be poor? That's not the point. Right? There's nothing necessarily wrong with being rich, and there's nothing wrong with being poor necessarily. That's not the point. But the problem James is addressing here is, is the heart issue. What's the motive? What is the motive that's affecting the behavior? But notice verse 4. Because James announces his verdict. Lest you, you, you stand in doubt, the verdict from the usher is he's, he's guilty of discrimination. He's made distinctions, the Holy Spirit says. He's become a judge. He doesn't have objective clarity. And notice he's guilty of evil motives. Now, we don't exactly know what the motive is, but... Here's a few guesses that have sprung to my mind. Well, maybe he's playing favorites. Maybe he wants some personal gain out of this. Right? Think it, put yourself in his sandals. You're the usher. Right? The rich guy comes in. You give him VIP status. I mean, he, he gets to sit right there, as close to the lectern as possible. Everybody notices. So he gives you some money. Right? Maybe personal gain maybe he's not that bad in motives maybe maybe he just wants this guy to give some money to the church right i mean if he's a millionaire imagine the millionaire tithing on his million dollars Ooh, that would be nice 
I don't know, possible ideas of motives there. But James is clear, at least on this point, that partiality is sin. Right? You don't have to guess. He says so. And if there's one place where class distinctions have no place, it should be in our places of worship. Should be. So that, that means your color, your political persuasions, your financial status, uh, you know, what clothes you're wearing, your appearance should not motivate your behavior. So that's the illustration that he gives as he's trying to show us the sin of partiality. And sometimes we like reasons, and James is good at doing that. He gives us some reasons here of why this kind of behavior is actually inconsistent with authentic Christian faith. And that's the majority of the text. And he actually gives us, in fact, he gives us a triad, three reasons of why that kind of behavior is inconsistent with true Christianity. And the first one's a theological reason. Theological reason is, is right there in verse 5 when he says, Hey, listen up. i got something important to say to you, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? In other words, God shows no partiality. God's not partial. So neither should we. His children shouldn't be partial. If if the father's not partial, then neither should his children. And of course, the Apostle Paul develops this principle quite well. So let me read to you here, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. It's a similar idea. It says this, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. God's not partial. Neither should his children. That's the theological argument. But the second one is a logical argument, and James uses two rhetorical questions here to show his logical argument. And what he's trying to do is reveal quite a bit, actually, about the situation in which the Jewish Christians actually found themselves in. So look at the first one, right there in verse 6. Rhetorical question. But you have dishonored the poor man... Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And the obvious answer is yes. In case you're wondering, uh, James readers knew the answer was yes. We need to understand the answer is yes. It, It was these rich and powerful people who were persecuting the poor Christians and dragging them into court. The second question is is following that, that the rich and the powerful were also blaspheming Christ's name. Now, if you read between the lines, so to speak, you can tell that the poor were not involved in that kind of persecution. It was, it was not the poor, but the rich. And therefore, showing favoritism toward the rich and mistreating the poor made no logical sense to James, nor the Holy Spirit, And the third reason is a biblical reason. 
verses 8 through 11. The argument is basically that Scripture actually excludes all partiality. In fact, James actually goes all the way back to Leviticus 19 and quotes, uh, he's quoting from Leviticus, Leviticus 19.18, which says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quoted that as well in Matthew 19. So James' readers would have immediately recognized a very key Old Testament verse there. In fact, it's the basis for Jesus' golden rule. You remember the golden rule? Basically, is the idea, well, treat people the same way you want to be treated. And so Christ, in Matthew, he actually called this the second of the two greatest commandments. The Apostle Paul in Romans says that every commandment in the law of Moses is summed up in that saying. He also says in Galatians, Galatians chapter 5 talks about the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In, In other words, it's fulfilled in that second great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So given the fundamental here importance of this royal law or the the king of law, if you will, what's God saying here? If you break this one law, it's it's as if you've broken all ten commandments. <laughs> That's how serious this is. And if you break any of the, the others, you've broken this one in verse 11. Notice he mentions a couple of the Ten Commandments there in verse 11. And that's just that's not meant to be exhaustive. Obviously there's more. But notice uh, he, he talks about adultery and murder. And he says, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. You break one, you're guilty of the whole thing. That's what he's saying. So that's the biblical reasoning. Shouldn't be inconsistency there. Show no partiality. That is the principle. And so then he goes on to exhort us to do what is right. We are exhorted here to do what is right. Now notice verse 12. There's two commands, two Greek imperatives there. The Holy Spirit says, okay, so don't do that. So what should we do? Right? Here's what you should do. He says, so speak. And so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So James is wrapping up his indictment here of partiality, and he gives you an exhortation to apply. Let Scripture be your standard, is is the basic idea. Uh, the, uh, The other thing he's saying here is let love be your law. Let mercy be your message. He's saying... Do not speak and act out of natural, superficial, cultural conditioning. To speak and act that way makes believers actually into, notice, what do you become? It it, it turns you into a lawbreaker. And, according to verse 13, actually subjects you to God's discipline. Now, we know from Romans 8.1 that believers will never fall under condemnation by God because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what's the judgment being mentioned here? What's that talking about in verse 13? 
Well, they're going to be judged and rewarded on how they actually conduct themselves in this life. You will be. All believers will be. You will stand before Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. And be judged for what you have done. So James is revealing here the standard by which all believers will be judged. And notice what it is. It's not your opinion. It's not culture. James says it is the law of liberty. The law of liberty. And of course, the law of liberty excludes all partiality. It excludes prejudice. And so we must put away all partiality. And you say, well, why? Because God says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I've got a beautiful quote here from Joe MacArthur. It's not on the screen, but he, he says this about uh, uh, verse 13. He says, quote, When a man lives without mercy to others... He simply shows off the fact that he himself has never responded rightly to the immeasurable mercy of God. The mercy a man has shown others as fruit of a life touched by God's saving mercy will triumph over judgment. His own sins, worthy of judgment, are removed by God's working in his life, dissolving all the charges strict justice might bring against him. Thus, his showing of mercy is not a matter of heaping up personal merit to deserve salvation by his own good works. The mercy he shows is itself a work of God for which he can take no credit. End quote. So what is the mercy doing? It's it's not the root, it's the fruit. Right? You see the fruit on the tree showing what's going on in the roots. And that's the idea here. And so James is bringing uh, his argument to a climax, to, to the high point, if you will. Partiality, he clearly says, is inconsistent with the Christian faith. Why? Because Christian faith is consistent with the very nature of God. What's God like? God doesn't show partiality. So it's inconsistent with his purpose, in fact, And the very plan of God, what did we see? What's the plan of God, James says? God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the mighty, the poor. And so even if it were the the only sin a person ever committed, partiality, like all other sins, just shatters the entire law of God. It makes a person a transgressor. The idea there, if there is no fruit, you stand condemned. You are judged. You are condemned to hell forever. And if you if you come before God's judgment and, and He sees that you've lived a life that is merciful to others, guess what? God says, I will show you mercy. So, why does God do that, though? Because your mercy is is actually testifying that you're a real believer. You are a genuine Christian. (laughs) And so, it's going to be true in your case that mercy, notice the last part, verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. Contrarily, a person who has lived a life devoid of mercy to others, you, you haven't loved others, God's not going to show love to you. He's not going to show mercy to you. 
It shows that you are actually without saving faith if you never show mercy and love to other people. So how can we apply this today? Well, as we often do with Scripture, remember the principle of replacement. Number one, you must stop holding on to your partiality. Number one is stop holding on to your partiality. Have you heard that saying, and it's true, that birds of a feather flock together? You ever heard that? Birds of a feather flock together. And that is true not just for birds, but it happens with people all the time, right? You can walk into a strange environment, and it's like you have radar, and you can tell the person who is most similar to you. And it's like, it happens rather quickly. It's unbelievable. And how true that is even in in churches. I mean, I'm tempted to say especially in churches. (laughs) You see this happen a lot. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of various churches out there, large churches, small churches. There's churches, inner city churches, suburb churches. Young churches, old churches, formal churches, informal churches, the list can go on and on. But the idea is they're they're all composed, sometimes churches can become composed of people who look the same, they think the same, they talk the same, they act the same, and they often mistrust, dislike, or alienate others who don't seem to quite be the same kind of bird they are. Birds of a feather flock together, and so what do we do if they're not the same kind of bird, well, you peck at them and drive them away, right? I see this happen with chickens all the time because i got chickens wandering around my property that are missing feathers, and they look horrible because the other chickens have pecked on them and drove them away. That's what birds do to each other. It's not very nice. So why has it been so difficult for Christians to take seriously James' words here about partiality? Could it be we're okay with loving our neighbors so long as you get to pick your own neighborhood? Could that be the reason? But James' words, notice, James' words concerning partiality should challenge our attitudes and hopefully change our actions as well. But notice a second application here. First of all, in order for that to happen, you need to believe that partiality is a sin. Do you believe when James says that? He said so. Partiality is sin. It doesn't match up with God's character. You're you're anti-God if you are partial toward another human being. We we have to believe what God says here. Otherwise, why would you want to do something that's uncomfortable for a lot of people? But number three, uh, let the Scriptures be your standard rather than your own habits. Just notice what God says in verse 12. Scripture must be your standard. He says, in fact, God commands you to speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. You will be judged by Scripture, friend. We often hide behind our excuses. Sometimes some of us might say things like, well, hey, that's just how I was raised. (laughs) I can't help myself. Right? I mean, sometimes you might even try to do what Adam and Eve did, right? God, aren't you the one who gave me my parents? I can't help myself. Or we might say things like, well, those people have their own way of doing things. And as James said, partiality and faith in Christ do not 
mix. They don't mix. So stop holding on to your prejudices and hiding behind your flimsy excuses. <laughs> so whether your particular group, it doesn't matter what it is, black, white, yellow, Hispanic, Arab, Jew, Asian, you know, you name it, you just have to get over it. And believe what God says. Decide right now you're going to agree with Scripture, you're going to call sin what sin is, how God sees it, and believe what He says. Number four, fourth application here is, let love be your law. Let love be your law. See, James calls the command to love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 8, he calls it the royal law. Verse 12, he calls it the law of liberty. And so when you're encountering people who are different from you, and it doesn't matter if they're older or younger, their skin's lighter or darker than yours, or they're richer or poorer than you, you, you must, friend, you must resist this idea that, uh, hey, I have to get as far away from that person as possible. That's not godly. And you must answer the question, how can I best love this person in my words as well as my actions? How can I help this individual? How can I build this person up? How can I show grace and mercy to this person instead of discrimination and partiality? So friend, as you seek to apply James' message, ask God to reveal the sin in your heart. Ask Him to show where are you guilty in this manner. Because we've, all, we've probably all have shown favoritism and partiality in some way or another. But at the same time, ask for discernment. You, you need to make accurate distinctions about how to love. See, James isn't saying that you have to go treat every soul on planet Earth exactly the same. Well, first of all, that's not even possible. But... But, but you can treat people unfairly. We, we can treat them unfairly by just simple, superficial prejudices that we have. We're all guilty of that at times. And the last application is this. Allow your biblical beliefs to control your behavior. See, this is one of the points that James is making. See, your behavior must be driven by good theology. Because theology always drives methodology. As my wise pastor drove into me many, many times. See, if you believe what James has been talking about here, and I believe, I believe the Christians, the readers of this letter, would have understood what James is talking about, that Jesus, in verse 1, is their Lord. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's really good theology. They obviously believe that God is gracious and merciful. That He is love. And that His word is truth. And that one day He will judge. All people will be judged. And if that is true, which it is, then guess what? Your conduct is going to reveal, do you really believe that? In other words, do you actually have a conviction on that? Do your biblical beliefs drive what you do? They should. They should. Because your theology will drive your methodology. So, this is what James is trying to teach us here. 
This is why you need to be in the Word. You need to know what God thinks, what He says, so that you're, you have the right behavior, the right conduct, the right life, if you will. So here's the, again, friends, here's the proposition. What does God want you to do with this text? That God, number one, here's what you put off. He doesn't want you to show partiality. What do you put in its place? God wants you to love all people. You say, well, how do I do that? Go back to Leviticus. The very words that Jesus quoted in Matthew was, you love your neighbor, how? As yourself. We all love ourselves. We're all really good at that. That's how you're to love. As you love yourself. So don't show partiality, but love all people. May God enable you to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these powerful words from James. May we understand what you want us to do, which is to not show partiality, to not be prejudiced, show favoritism in this way, but instead to love all types of people as we love ourselves. We know that's impossible. (laughs) That is certainly not in our nature. So would you give us a godly nature that would enable us to fulfill the royal law, the law of liberty. May we understand that Scripture is the standard, not us, not our culture or anything else there. So may we be driven, consumed, motivated by the Scripture. We're thankful that Jesus understood this. He taught it. He wants us to obey this as well. So may we love Him. We love ourselves as we obey these commands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.